When I started in 1974, I left school on the Friday and started in the steel industry on the Monday, so I had two days off from school to work. <laughs> and I always remember when on me induction, just as we was finished induction before they sent us out onto the big wide works, the chief come in and he says, don't ever think you're on your own. There's 25,000 plus people work in these steel industries in Scunthorpe alone. I mean, did you ever think when you were at school that you might work anywhere else? Uh, no, it, it won't. Because the money was good in the steel industry, people just expected to go into the steel industry because every single person in Scunthorpe at that time had somebody who worked on the steelworks. Paul McBean followed his father and grandfather into Scunthorpe's steel mills, a small town in the northeast of England that exported steel across the globe. Now, he's a union organiser, struggling to keep the mill in the town. And at the time, could you imagine Scunthorpe without steel? No, no, and, and I don't think many people can. In fact, I don't think anybody can. I mean, I started in 74, and um, I was on the furnaces, blast furnaces, and we was on days. And then you got the move up into dead man's shoes, which basically meant somebody retired or they died. You got a move up onto shifts. Once you got onto shifts, you was on the big money. Asma Khan's story couldn't be more different. She was born to a wealthy family in Calcutta, India, and moved to the UK in the 1990s with her husband. Well, I mean, I, I had an arranged marriage. Had you met him before? I met him for a week. OK. And then he came back after two months and we got married. So we were all in three months' time. We got married, I moved to Cambridge, and then it was a real shock. It was absolutely soul-shattering. I, I left home 30 years ago. You couldn't call. It was very expensive. You couldn't go back. It was very expensive. No internet, no mobile phone. I was uprooted, and I felt, you know, like the trees, the first time I'd seen trees without leaves. It was this bareness and, you know, the naked trees. I was thinking, you know, this is mean. She turned to cooking for solace, and soon, instead of the traditional family restaurant, she took a more touch-and-go approach. I have a very unconventional story. Mine is a story which is really organic, began in my house, not as a restaurant, but a supper club where, you know, I hadn't had any money. And I then moved to a pop-up when I couldn't do it in my house anymore. I was in a pub down the road in Soho. All these kind of biker types, you know, really kind of guys with Harley Davidson outside said, I don't want your curry love. Very dismissive and very unhappy to give up a table because they didn't want to, they wanted to drink on the table, but they didn't want to eat. Yeah, and I, I failed. There were days when I sold nothing. It was very hard, and my entire life changed when I had Faye Mashler, who was at that time the restaurant critic of Evening Standard, well-established in her 70s, came to eat at this pub and wrote the most amazing review. Now she runs a high-end Indian restaurant, Darjeeling Express, in the centre of London. Between them... Paul's story in the steel mills and Asma's experience in the Indian restaurant business tells the story of the changing face of the British working class. Because right now, in the UK, there are more people employed in Indian restaurants than in coal, steel and shipbuilding combined. The three industries that provided the backbone of the British Union movement and the driving force behind the Industrial Revolution eclipsed by cuisine from the former empire. I'm Gary Young, a journalist, author, and professor of sociology at the University of Manchester in Britain. This is Facts, 
a documentary podcast that challenges how we think about the world. Each episode looks at a new statistic, comparison or counterintuitive truth, and tries to get to the bottom of it. We'll be looking at politics, sociology, history, economics and more with deep cut interviews and on-the-ground reporting. The thing that we're exploring here is that Indian restaurants employ more people than shipbuilding, steel and coal all put together. And I just want to know, does that fact surprise you? Well, actually, no, it doesn't, because obviously I've been employed in the steel industry since 1974. I've seen the decline of the steel industry. I chatted to Paul in a car park on a rainy day in Scunthorpe. The jobs that were in plentiful supply in the steel mills when he was young were well-paid union jobs. They were also dangerous. We had the major disaster on the blast furnaces with Queen Victoria killed 11 of my workmates. So I then got the promotion and I only did one shift and I couldn't cope, so I left. You couldn't cope? I just did probably call it something nowadays. At the time, I just couldn't cope with working where 11 of my friends had been killed. So it was, I mean, dead men's shoes was a metaphorical term, yes. meaning when people retired, but yeah. then actually it was literally true that's, what that's, you were doing. In my, in my case, yeah, because I got the move up then. Can you, if it's not too painful, reflect on that tragedy, that day? Well, um, I mean, obviously I was dazed. It happened in the middle of the night, uh, 4th of November. What happened was that the pod, a torpedo full of iron, and it stood, and we had a leak, and we'd had this leak for about six months and water run in. Well, normally it would just steam off. Of course, it put a crust on top of the iron. There's two and a half thousand tonnes of iron. It put a crust on top. When the workers were instructed to move the torpedo full of iron, it exploded. They found brickwork a quarter of a mile away. And of course, it all blew out the top, killed the two shunter drivers all over the furnace floor, and 11 people was killed. We knew something had gone on because obviously it, there was alarms and everything. I turned up to work next morning, the police wouldn't let us on site. So we was off site and then we was allowed on site the day after and then they come to me. I remember the manager come to me and he said, you've got your move up, you're starting shifts tomorrow. This is what the steel industry was like. Come back in 78, because I missed it. Mm. I missed the people. They're, they're, they're a one-off type of person. I suppose if you worked in the uh, coal industry, they're a certain type of people. The shipbuilding, the humour and everything, it, it's so unique to this type of work. And so I come back in 78. Despite the trauma, Paul couldn't stay away. The mills were central to his identity. But all around him, Britain was changing too. Waves of immigrants from the former empire were arriving, bringing their culture with them. Indian restaurants employ more people than shipbuilding, coal and mining all put together. So I want to ask, does that surprise you at all? Absolutely, and I, I run an Indian restaurant and that's absolutely shocking what you've just said. I had, didn't realize it was so big, but also there's a part of me which is very sad because I know that the three industries you mentioned our traditional British manufacturing, you know, the base, you know, of working class Britain. And I know that that has shrunk so much. Trying to make a new life, 
even as they faced racism. Many of the first Indian restaurants were family-run affairs that adapted Indian cuisine to a British palate. That's why Asma is so keen to defend that very British of dishes, chicken tikka masala. I'm very grateful because I do see a lot of uh, Indian chefs today uh, uh, criticizing curry houses. I never criticize them because I know they had stones thrown through their doors. They had far right marching down Brick Lane. Here in Brick Lane, the center of the Bengali community in the East End, attacks on Asians have been common. Well, of course, there are far too many immigrants in this country. I'm swearing, shouting, and throw these stones, break my all windows. I believe the police knew what was going to happen on that Sunday, and if they wanted to, they could have stopped it. They could have stopped them coming to Brick Lane. We want some action, firm action. If it's a question of self-defense, they, they grew because it was really about, you know, the fact that one person succeeded. A lot of these people who are running restaurants know each other. They actually come from two villages, two, three villages around Salat, Malvi Bazaar being the main train station where they come from. I know that place. And so it was really the clan of people who talked about it. And this was successful. You know, they went and got their uncle or their nephew at a different time, you know, when it was much easier for families to be united. In 1960, there were just 300 Indian restaurants in Britain. By the most recent numbers, there are about 12,000 now, mainly small places and regional chains, employing around 100,000 workers. That's according to data compiled by Lord Karen Bilmoria, the chairman of Cobra Beer and member of a parliamentary committee on the curry catering industry. Meanwhile, shipbuilding, steel and coal employ just roughly 65,000 people combined. I asked Ellie Mayho Hagen how we got there. I'm the director of Class Think Tank. It surprises me that it's sort of such a specific restaurant. I do think it probably speaks to a wider trend of sort of secure, skilled manufacturing work decreasing in favour of low-paid, insecure service labour. But it's not just the number of workers. It's the kind of work. What was so good about a period where steel, coal and shipbuilding had more workers? What was so good about that? Well, I think it created good conditions for trade unions. You know, you, you'd be there for years and years and years. The whole community often in, in certain places would grow around the workplace. This is particularly the case with coal mines. So you could organise. And you're obviously also creating things that are necessary for society to function. So if you withdraw your labour, that's a huge problem. So that gives you power. All of that stuff means that, you know, your wages are higher, your terms and conditions are better, you are respected as a worker. Like, the work that these people were doing was often hard work and not pleasant, but it was sort of seen as valuable and it was sort of worthwhile and dignified. That was how it was seen. Whereas, you know, if you look at the sort of modern workplace, so there's a town called Rudgeley in the north of England. They were a pit town, pits closed, and now there's an Amazon warehouse there. So the sort of grandchildren of the miners are now working in an Amazon warehouse. And maybe if things had gone differently, they would be working in a mine. And, you know, these are workers that can be fired at the drop of a hat. Their labor is classed as unskilled. They are necessarily young because their work is so physically grueling. And they're basically encouraged to think that they can be replaced at any given moment. And thanks to modern technology, they are kind of subject to quite a lot of surveillance, which means that organizing and joining a union is really hard for them. And it wasn't just the work that changed, but the very nature of work and the function 
of the workplace. In lots of modern workplaces, you are less likely to see the same colleagues every day because it's often like shift work, insecure shift work. And sometimes like with app-based work, for example, which a lot of restaurants do run on app-based work now, that means it's harder to kind of have a workplace. It's harder to like be in that workplace and get organized and see the same set of colleagues every day and talk about your shared interests. Paul recalls how work wasn't just the place you went in the day and got paid. It was the beating heart of the town, shaping its culture and setting its pace. You could literally set your clock by it. So at shift change, there used to be a big horn when you could hear it all over Scunthorpe. So everybody knew when it was 10 o'clock, when it was 2 o'clock, and when it was 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> everybody in Scunthorpe could hear this hooter. So certain pubs used to open at 4 o'clock in the morning to catch the 62 guys going to work and then coming off nights and used to go for a few beers. That's just what Scunthorpe was like. And we had all these working men's clubs, which was absolutely superb. But as the steel industries died in this town, the slowly but surely the working men's clubs have followed suit so we virtually well in fact i think we have we've lost all working men's clubs now the decline started in the early 80s shortly after margaret thatcher came to power and paul returned to work with a personal mission to improve safety at the mill i started back again september 78 and uh, then in 79 i become a safety rep in 1979 in the Union, because I knew what would be caused, we all knew what had caused the explosion. The company had bought cheap fittings, which expanded at a different speed to the rest of the furnace. And so it, as the furnace expanded with the heat, the water was escaping from the side. Everybody knew that was happening, but nobody did anything about it. So I become a safety rep, and I've been a safety rep ever since. At that time, everyone working in the Scunthorpe steel mill was part of the Union. Well, when you started, when you come in, they asked you to fill these certain forms in. One was for your pension and this and that. And they says, oh, you have to fill that one in. Well, what's this one? This is a union. You've got to join a union. One or two said, I'm not joining a union. Says, well, you best leave now then, because you can't work on the works unless you're in a union. Close shop. Same as everywhere. I mean, in the coal industry, in the shipbuilding, anywhere you could think it was close shops. So everybody had to be in a union. And, and that force people to take an interest in the safety side and everything else. And then we at the strike of 1980. In TVI tonight, steelworkers leader Bill Sears confronts Sir Charles Villers, head of the British Steel Corporation. We was out for three months. What was the strike about? Uh, pay. But what was happening was Maggie Thatcher had come into power and uh, we knew she was going to attack the big industries. We knew. It met with heated reaction from picketing steel men in the lobby outside. Police were called as fighting started in the street. And, several and so we had a big meeting and we met with the miners, with shipbuilders, with the railway workers. And we all agreed that if one come out, everybody would come out and we'd hold a national strike because we knew she was going to attack us. We was the first ones. We was kind of going on strike. We wanted a bigger pay rise, they wouldn't give us one, so we informed the other unions that we was going on strike, you know, to back us, and we went on strike and they didn't. They didn't? No, they, uh, they didn't go. They None didn't of them. back us, none of them, not one of them. So we was out for three months, and basically our union was forced back to work, really, because the union was skint. They'd used all the money funding the strike, and so they had no money. Good evening. The leaders of the main steel unions have voted to call off the strike and a return to work from 6 o'clock on Thursday morning. So that was the beginning, because then the yeah. British still knew that they could roll you over. Yeah, yeah, basically we couldn't 
we couldn't basically we couldn't fight back. We had no money to fight back. We had we had nothing. So the shut Redburn offered everybody redundancy or a job at one of the other two plants. Then a couple of years after that, they shut Normby Park and offered the same deal to them people there. So I mean, we fought it, we marched, we did everything, but they still did it. After they broke the strike, British Steel started to make job cuts that it otherwise wouldn't have been able to make when the union was strong. The unions no longer had the resources to fight the company as it started to slash costs and shut mills. What did that do to the town? You know, I'm thinking of a collective loss. Yeah. What did that feel like? Well, like? it was... Um... It was quite unbelievable, actually, because when we lost Redburn, I mean, that's the one, because I could have had redundancy, but I didn't. I took a job on Appleby Frontingham. A lot of money was paid out in redundancy, so for the first year, everybody was cock-a-hoop because they had plenty of money in the back pocket, them who, who took redundancy, but, of course, that ran out. And then they tried to get back, and we wouldn't let them back because they'd sold their job, if you like. We asked them not to, but they did. It was quite fractious, actually. There was them who left waving the money because they'd got plenty of money. The guys that was left, it wasn't jealousy, it was the fact that people had sold a job. That hurt the most, I think. And then all of a sudden, these people who took the money and gone and bought a new car or whatever, realised then, well, I've spent the money, now what do I do? So they had to take load-paid jobs within the town or outside the town, some had to travel miles. The defeat of the miners' strike in 1985 and the liberalisation of the world economy signalled the end of a way of life for the British working class. Workers lost their bargaining power at the very time the capital became free to roam the globe in search of cheap labour. Foreign investors descended on Scunthorpe. By the time we get to the 90s, what's happening to Scunthorpe? Uh, well, by then, we was loss-making. We was basically losing money in the 90s. Then... Tata took us over. The Indian, it's an Indian company. Yeah, the Indian company took us over. They paid too much for it because they got in a bidding war with a company from Brazil. Scunthorpe Steelworks passed through a succession of outside buyers. So here we go again. So we had to look round for a new buyer. It was hard work. And, and then Grable come along. They're an investment company. And this All the while, jobs were being cut and the Scunthorpe plant was downsizing. The world moves on. People have got other jobs. What kind of jobs? Is it retail or...? It, um... There's a lot of retail jobs. There's a lot of factory units sprung up. Warehouse? Is there any... Yeah, there's of... lots of warehouses around and there's people working from warehouses. There's rent kitchens, who's now massive. Things have stepped in, but it's taken from 1980 to virtually now. Today, according to a recent Commons report, the UK steel industry employs around 33,400 people. In 1971, it employed almost 10 times that number. The steelworks is now owned by a Chinese company named Jingye Group, which has saved some jobs, but has left the place a shadow of its former self. A way of life withered away. And while the nostalgia for secure work and a living wage should be respected, it would be a mistake to romanticize it. The work was often dangerous and almost exclusively male. And even as it was in decline, the constitution of the working class in Britain was fundamentally changing in a range of ways. While the unions were still in their heyday, immigrants from the Caribbean, Africa, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan and other parts of South Asia arrived in the UK and started to make an impact on the British palate. And in turn, their newfound customers made an impact on the food that these new immigrants were cooking. 
They opened small family restaurants and cooked home fare, but with a twist. So I think that, you know, people were, were excited by the new flavors and the thing. And, you know, to some extent, they did play around with trying to bring in creamier structures, you know, thinking that this would be more like a kind of cream, cream sauce, cream-based sauce. So this is not part of our culture because, you know, it's so hot in our part of the world. You can't put cream and butter in things, it'll split. So this, they were cooking things that they themselves had never eaten. So they recreated an idea of a cuisine which they thought people would find acceptable and people loved it. So they were not adventurous. They were very careful. They tried to keep a fixed formula and everybody did the same thing. Today, British Indian cuisine isn't just the norm. It can be high dining. And we can see the unfolding of globalization in British Indian food as well. If you look at all the early restaurants like the Cinnamon Club, Cyrus Dodiwala, all, you know, ex-five-star hotels of India. So they are professional chefs who came in, who got visas to come to this country to work in restaurants, and they recreated that kind of five-star so hotel. almost an exportation of the Indian yes. boom yes. to, to yes. Britain. So Absolutely. this is when India opens up after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And yeah, yeah. Becomes so when, when, when they started traveling, they came in and they set up restaurants in the same way that you had restaurants in five-star hotels. So the second wave as well of fine dining, of, you know, high-end, they learned to make in stainless steel empires, you know, mass cooking. Look at the size of their menu. This is not some, something they're making on the day. And as Ellie pointed out earlier, modern service work is precarious and often physically and mentally taxing. From small family restaurants without any protections to chain restaurants to sprawling stainless steel empires. The work is tough. You leave when it's still dark, you go home when it's dark. If you are in central London, the chances that your kitchen is you know, underground is very high. So no natural light, you're in a dark space with constantly the extractor hum going on. It's actually an extremely oppressive environment. Very cramped, it's very sweaty, it's very hot. It's pretty much what it was working condition in the 70s. Perpetual, rhythmic, constant noise. These jobs are also overwhelmingly male. In a traditional British curry house, women were left out. But Asma is working to change that, hiring an all-female kitchen who have never cooked commercially before. I want every woman to feel who's been othered because of the color of their skin, their sexuality, their background, where they were born, to know that in my voice, they hear their voice. These housewives, you know, in their 60s, coming from really dirt poor background, not educated, that they had reached that point where they were chefs. How could I take away their credit? Like Paul, she's hoping she can help to reform, if not transform, the industry in the face of a changing labor market and new technology. If you weren't to succeed, is there a chance? You've talked about how difficult it is to recruit people now, that we're, we're no longer doing a family business thing, you know, the paying conditions aren't so good. Is there a chance that Indian restaurants could go the way of coal and shipbuilding and mining and just people could walk away from it? Yes. I think that the traditional curry houses, there's a huge risk because they did this as a family business. But when the next generation is already doing other things, there's very little incentive left to, when you know that you're not passing it on to your family member. Also, you know, I think that if you go to Brick Lane now, you're going to get a shock to see how many you know, traditional curry houses have closed. So gentrification of these areas and the, the emptying out of high streets 
with, with retail having collapsed. And also, I would guess, if I'm thinking of my own habits, things like Deliveroo, Uber Eats, all that kind of stuff, which would depress, particularly the curry houses, where some, you, you don't need waste stuff. Someone comes in and, you, and then they take it away. Yes, and the thing is, dark kitchens are becoming more and more popular. Basically, where it's not got bricks and mortar, it's not on the high street, it's basically run from a warehouse in some corner in, in an industrial area. They have very minimal costs. And, you know, what's happening to workforce there, again, you don't know. The fact that more people in Britain work in Indian restaurants than coal, mining and shipbuilding, of course, tells us a great deal about how our economy has changed. But in so doing, it illustrates how almost every aspect of our society has been transformed. Our attitudes to work, our rights at work, the power of unions and potency of class identification, the impact of immigration not only on who does the work, but what we eat, who cooks it, and how we buy it. There's a lot of uh, sort of romanticising an ideal past where we kind of built things in Britain and people had jobs and work was dignified. And that is, that is true. That is, to an extent, that is true. And that's what makes it so powerful, is that there's a kernel of truth in it. But it has become clear that is something that really only white people romanticize. Like people of color are less likely to do that and women are less likely to do that for obvious reasons. So it's not really about saying that was some sort of halcyon existence and we need to return to it. It's understanding, I guess, what has been lost in the labor market or rather taken away and the effect that that's had on people today and their experience of work. The story of what happened to the steel industry and the Indian restaurant trade is the story of modern globalisation writ large, all caffeinated by new technology. Labour moved around the world in large numbers, usually drawn by colonial ties and the needs of the employment market. They took their cultures with them, and as they spread across the globe, so did their music, food, languages and customs. Meanwhile, capital was allowed to move with even greater freedom. Usually it did so on the basis of where it could reap the greatest profit. It took its resources with it. Areas which had been industrial powerhouses for a century or more declined rapidly. Investors from previous dominions emerged to the rescue and to profit from them. As a result, the people of Scunthorpe now have less work, less rights of work, a Chinese boss, and 20 Indian restaurants to choose from. Thank you.